afternoon. Uh, the first thing I want to do is to apologise for the face furniture. This isn't because I'm trying to emulate Tim Burton or Jack Nicholson, but I had an accident the other day, and this is a better look for you, I can assure you, than not having them on. Um, I wanted to try and pretend that I'd had a fight with Tom Stoppard over Kurosawa and Derrida, but I didn't think I'd get away with that, so I fell off my bike, is the answer. Um, so my name is Victor Glynn. Um, I'm a film producer and writer. Um, among other things, and I've been producing films for and script editing films for 30 years this year. Uh, my very first film uh, was a film called Good and Bad at Games, written by William Boyd. Um, it was one of the early films on four, and it was shown in November 1983. So um, it's quite a nice anniversary for me. Um, as well as being an amazing anniversary for this institution. The fact that it's 135 years to the day that the first public lectures were given, um, <coughs> I think, is, uh, is a remarkable achievement. Um, what I'm not going to do is teach today. I'm going to give you a flavour of what it is you could expect if you took part in the screenwriting course. Um, which is something that if you go on the creative writing undergraduate diploma is, is, a, cla is a compulsory class. Um, but whether or not you then choose to do it as your portfolio piece um, at the end of your second year is, uh, is entirely up to you. And that takes the form of writing a short um, film, uh, cinema film, or um, an extended treatment and selected scenes from a movie that you might be interested uh, in writing. And what we do, uh, fundamentally, just putting it down into, in, into small blocks, is that we take about half a dozen different aspects of a cinema film, break it down and see um, how those elements stand up. And very often, those elements can stand up on their own, which I'll come to shortly. So in the teaser, to get you into this room, um, there was a, a statement about the connection between Poetics, Aristotle's Poetics, Tarantino, um, and, uh, and others. And what is interesting, and you'll learn about this in other classes, not my classes, but Poetics uh, by Aristotle does form a very good grounding for anyone interested in structuring a piece of dramatic writing, whether it be tragedy, comedy, um, epic. All the elements are in there in terms of plot structure, at what stage you... Uh, should consider doing things, character development, uh, and all of that. And the extraordinary thing, of course, about poetics is that it is only about 40 pages long, this great weighty tome that an entire multi-billion pound industry sort of uh, depends upon. Um, and 42 pages doesn't sound very much. We don't know whether he only wrote 42 pages and that was the intention, or whether it was part of a much bigger work and we've actually lost... Uh, lost the rest of it. But there's no anecdotal evidence to suggest, uh, as there are with other things that uh, ri uh, contemporary writers um, uh, wrote, there's no, there's no evidence there that there, was, there were any other uh, sort of writings on it. But so what did he tell us in these uh, 42 pages? Well, part of it, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this, was to do with, in tragedy, for example, the inevitability 
the inevitable consequences of your actions. If you do a certain thing, there is a path you, which you're going to go down and there's going to be a denouement which is going to be ugly um, at the end of the process. Um, you may have diversions, you may think that you've uh, got away with it at some stage, but ultimately you're going to end up um, at ground zero. And similarly with uh, similar uh, constructs with comedy and with the epic, which very few of us need to um, concern ourselves with because none of us have the luxury of uh, doing something on such a, a grand scale, but that also will encompass elements of uh, the tragic and the comics, uh, comic structure. So we're talking about plot, we're talking about character development, though much less in terms of character development at the time, um, and plot being sort of the, the, the quintessential thing. And if we then look at films like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, clearly there is no narrative line in Pulp Fiction. It doesn't start from A and go to Z. It starts at about H and then goes to L and then suddenly you're at B and you'll try to work out, you have to try and work <coughs> out who the protagonist is. There's quite a challenge in that, whether it's Vega or Marcellus or who, who, who is it we're supposed to be following in this story. Um, uh, gunning for ultimately, but if you if you watch the film several times, several hundred times, you start to be able to um, uh, pick up perhaps what what the intentions are. But there is you can't deny that there is a connection, not a conscious connection necessarily between um, what contemporary directors like Tarantino are doing and what Aristotle was setting out in the first instance. But what we're trying to do in our class here, in, in our teaching, is actually to say, <coughs> where, is the, where is the importance of the script and how does that take us on in terms of the development of the picture? And it was Hitchcock who said, there are three fundamentally important things about a, about a movie. And they are the script, the script, and the script. And it's absolutely <laughs> true. Because... You can't make a good film out of a bad script. You can definitely make a bad film out of a good script, and you can make a good film out of great script, uh, a great script and a great film out of great script, but you cannot make a good film um, out of something uh, that isn't uh, addressed properly in the first place. And it's one of the great weaknesses. You see a lot of films that haven't uh, had enough attention paid to <coughs> the screenplay um, in the first place. And so what we do in class, in the, in, over, over the series of the classes, is we start off initially saying, well, where do, where do these stories come from? You can all answer those sort of questions. It's rhetorical in a sense, but they can be based on, uh, based on existing works. They can be stories you read in the newspaper. They can be genuinely original ideas, although that's quite a dangerous area because it's amazing how often you'll get half a dozen stories within a, within a one-year period which are incredibly similar uh, in, in tone and structure. And I'll give you a, a specific example of that. I did a film many years ago called The Chain, and it was about seven couples moving house in a circle. Each one of the couples was motivated by one of the sed seven deadly sins. And so they were moving up, moving up, the, moving up the scale. They started off... In the first couple in, in Hackney in London, moved to Finsbury Park, the next lot moved to um, Hammersmith, then to Hampstead, then to uh, ultimately to Belgravia. And the people in Belgravia, or the man in Belgravia, wanted, he was dying, and he wanted to go back to the house where he was born in Hackney, which is where our story 
had started in the first place. So it was a lovely sort of la in this. About two weeks after our film had opened, we got a letter from a lady called Margaret Bacon who said we'd stolen her story because she had written a book called The Chain, the same as our film. And how the lawyers and the people who checked these things, Thompson Thompson, hadn't spotted the existence of a, something of the same name, I don't know. But um, when we looked at this book, we read this book, we were absolutely horrified, gasped, because it was absolutely our stories. The characters were different, but they were all moving around in a circle. They were all motivated by one of the seven deadly sins. Um, and then I remembered that some years earlier, we'd given a press conference where we'd told people about the story that we planned to make as a film, and it took us about four years to get the film together. And then we looked at when this lady had written her book, and we were able to go back to her and suggest that maybe she'd read the interview in the Times, and that actually she'd stolen our idea um, and used it in her used it in her book. Unfortunately, the whole thing sort of went away. But there, but there are serendipitous things where people do come up with the same uh, the same idea quite quite legitimately, and it's uh, it it you know it really can be it really can be a problem. Um, and then, obviously, and there's a, there's a life writing uh, uh, class as part of the course, which is fabulous. And a lot of those uh, things, uh, life experiences, can lead on to being fictionalised and turned into, um, into films. And the William Boyd thing I mentioned earlier is a good example. Will had written in this, in this book, it's the first thing he published, on the Yankee Station. There's a short story in here, which is actually his... Um, sort of account of his school experiences at Gordonston, not particularly well disguised, um, but very, very funny, very moving, and quite, um, quite scary in many ways, because it was a story about revenge at public school in the 19, 1970s. And we adapted that, basically, took that sort of further on, but basically took the characters and some of the events and turned that into uh, a movie, which is, is called Good and Bad Games, which is published as um, School Ties, in fact, Old School Ties. And you've got to be careful in those areas, of course, because you might have, in fact, we did have one of his school chums who comes across as a particularly hideous character in the film. Um, and uh, he came to the premiere and very proudly came up and said, I'm so-and-so, do you know that? And it was very lucky for us that he was proud of being portrayed <laughs> as this ghastly character. Um, rather than saying, well, you'll be hearing from my lawyers, which is uh, one of the other alternatives. And one of the things you do, we did a series called um, uh, The Gravy Train, which I'm going to come to slightly later on, but The Gravy Train was about corruption in the EC. And um, that was the first uh, appearance of Christoph Waltz, who went on to win the Oscar, win the Oscar for Inglorious Bastards. Um, and... We had a, um, the, the, the villain, the main villain of the piece was a, a man called Jacques Villeneuve, who was the um, Minister for Agriculture, or the Commissioner for Agriculture in the EC. And um, you do these ne negative checks when you're about to make something, and the, these lawyers who specialise in this area go to make sure that there isn't a barrister, if, if he's a bad guy, of that name living in Clapham or that kind of thing. And obviously, the Commissioner for Agriculture is an easy one to check out. And... Um, about a week after the film had been shown on, uh, on Tendeur in France, we had a letter from a very charming man called Jacques Villeneuve, who was the Commissioner for Agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
He'd said to us that he was absolutely delighted and his family were highly amused and he'd actually sent us a case of wine. Um, if he'd been an American, I think it would have been a rather different, uh, a rather different story. So we start off, as I say, we start off and look at where um, stories comes, uh, where story, uh, stories come from, and what the strengths of those stories are. We look at how to design a uh, what we call a story arc, the beginning and the end of the story is the o overall thing, and then the, if you like, the events in in the middle. Movies are less disciplined than. Uh, television is television writing is television expects things to be done in a particular in a particular structure so many minutes for this so many minutes for that five acts three acts whatever whatever it is depending on whether you're doing an hour or, or 90 minutes or whatever F in film you have a much much greater greater luxury you can do 30 seconds as a teaser at the beginning of a movie and then go back a thousand years or whatever it is you want to do you, you can really play around, you can nine acts if you want, if, if the thing's really going to sustain it. You can, again, in a Tarantino kind of way, you can split up <coughs> the same, uh, same storyline and in interweave it uh, with others, which may or may not be ultimately connected with, with your initial uh, story. And one of the things I say at the beginning of class, and I've got, and anyone who's ever been in my class, there's no one here, thank goodness, who has been before, um, I always turn up with loads and loads of books for people to borrow, take away, have a look at, and browse, and books I recommend and books that I don't um, recommend. So, for example, things I absolutely do recommend, which you might want to read anyway, these might have been suggested by the people already, which is Virginia Woolf's uh, Room of One's Own, and this amazing book by Stephen King um, on writing. The very, very best book about writing in film is this by a man called William Goldman. Um, William Goldman is the god of um, American uh, screenwriting. Everything you think is wonderful, it'll be written by William Goldman, almost, uh, almost without exception. But see, the opening line in this basically says, nobody knows nothing. <laughs> so all those rules that you're told and all those sort of things, the thing you have to do is to go and tell your story. You're a creative person, you're an artist, you're not someone filling in the dots doing an episode of EastEnders or, um, you know, The Bill or whatever. You're, you're making something that's original, is original to yourself. And you'll be told, don't tell the director what he should do. Well, I don't believe that, personally. <laughs> and if you look at, um, uh, go, and, go and look at the original screenplay to On the Waterfront, for, uh, as a for instance. There are two pages before there's any dialogue of the writer telling the director what he wants this to look like. He wants this to be grey, he wants this to be blue, he wants this to, well, black and white so it won't be, but the, uh, you know, the mood and that kind of thing. And so then the book that everyone is told to buy is this, Screenwriting by Sid Field. My own feeling about this particular book is that you shouldn't waste the £14.99 on it because it's unbelievably prescriptive. It tells you precisely what you have to do. It almost tells you how many words each scene need to be. It tells you what you can say, what you can't say. And it's outrageous, in my, in my, in my humble opinion. Now, the best way to check Sid Field, the screenwriting god, go onto IMDb and see how many films he's written, OK? It's less than that. In fact, it's less than that. Um, and he's a very fine man, I'm sure. 
Um, just in case my learned friends are watching this. Um, no, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful, talented chap, but I wouldn't recommend that book unless you want to do formulaic writing for American uh, cinema. And most of us here don't have the chance to um, get into that into that world, and it's it, it's, alien, it's an alien culture in in so many ways, uh, in so many ways to us. And the other thing is, so before I go on to, on to the next bit, creative writing itself is, is, is a bizarre concept to a lot of people. There aren't terribly many successful uh, writers who, you know, scream and shout and say how wonderful it is as something one should, one should study, which I clearly um, uh, disagree with. But Ian McEwan is a great example of a, a proselytizer, um, uh, not just for this course, but creative writing as, a, as, a, as an undertaking. Um, as is David Mamet, who I'm going to talk, talk about in a minute, as is indeed William Boyd. I once had the um, misfortune to not buy the rights to something I was offered many, many years ago, which is this book here by Colin Dexter. It's called The Last Bus to Woodstock. Um, and I decided that it really wouldn't work. Um, and, um, but I was talking to, and I ended up, as it happens, um, I ended up being uh, chief executive of the company that made Inspector Morse, so I sort of got it back in the end. But um, Colin uh, tells a very good story about creative writing and uh, why, in his view, it's a load of trousers. And he said the only time he's ever come across creative writing is when he wrote The Last Bus to Woodstock, and he hadn't had anything uh, proper uh, published before. And... Um, or of substance published before. And uh, he went to the Bear Hotel in Woodstock, which some of you might know, and um, he asked them if he could use the name of the hotel as the place where the murder takes place in his book he was going to write, called The Last Bus to Woodstock, and they said, absolutely not. <laughs> we cannot possibly have our hotel associated with a grisly act like that. So he had to think again, and so what he did was he thought, well... Nobody's going to um, let me use their location for this, so I'll make up a name. He, it was very important it was Woodstock, and he thought, well, the Black Prince was born in Woodstock. Um, I'll call it the Black Prince. I'll call the venue the Black Prince. Because at that time, there wasn't a pub in Woodstock called the Black Prince. <laughs> Between sending the book to be printed and the book coming out, a pub in Woodstock changed its name to the Black Prince entirely coincidentally, and... He said, now that's creative writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, the Black Prince gets lots of people who go there because, oh, this is where the murder took place, and in, in, uh, so it's very good for trade. A, a little trick that um, <coughs> the bear sort of missed out upon. So as I say, we start off by looking at um, you know, where ideas come from, how we, how we actually uh, structure the plays, what, what the disciplines are, in, in the broadest possible sense, how do we how do we approach? You know, uh, we're looking. This is a, a you know p potential career path for some some people. What do we need to write? So we go through writing treatments, writing parts of screenplays, writing pitch documents, uh, uh, learning how to describe your film in four words or sixteen words or something like that, rather than the chap on the other side of the wall on the other side of the table falling asleep before you've got to the uh, the punchline of your story. All very important skills. 
to learn. And we practice them in class. And we write half the first half of the class, I bore the class with telling them about a particular thing, a particular aspect, and the second part is actually doing doing the stuff, going off in exercises, mostly in pairs where they set particular things to do. So for example, one of the things is trying to get through, this is in the title of the thing, trying to get through the fact that one of the biggest weaknesses in British screenwriting in particular is we like to talk. And there is far too much verbiage and people describe what we can see. We don't need it to be described, we can see it, it's a movie. And sometimes we don't even need to see it, we can hear it. So for example, you can open a film which is in the semi-darkness and we can just hear the gentle breeze and we can hear the uh, cicadas. We don't, need to hear, we don't need to hear or see anymore. We don't need anybody to say anything because we know that we're somewhere hot. We know that we're somewhere maybe, and you might hear the, the sound of the, the sea or something like that crashing on the beach. All of these kind of things you can do as a film writer without any dialogue at all. And in one of the classes, we do a class where you all have to write a film, short five minute film, which has no dialogue in it. And we start off that by talking about um, Hitchcock's Blackmail, which is a very interesting film. If any of you are interested in doing the course, you should watch it before you come. There are two versions. There's a silent version and a talking version. The silent version is the one the studio, ABC Pictures, in Elstree thought they were commissioning, and secretly Hitchcock was also making a talkie <laughs> on the other side of the lot. Um, and some very, very, very interested, uh, interested, interesting people were actually involved in making that, uh, that secret version of the film. But it's, if you look at those two films side by side, compare and contrast, it's very interesting how little the words are actually needed in that instance. And then you've also got, I mean, when, when talkies came in, for example, as a sideline here, when talkies came in, um, the, the original, the only sound that was in the, the, the original talkies were, peop was, uh, were people speaking and some music. And it was quite a bit later on, it was in the, I think it was the 1930s, when uh, what's called diegesic sound was in, in, introduced, which is ambient sound, which is what, he's getting, what I was describing, the cicadas and the sounds of motor car horns or whatever, you know, lots of motor car horns, oh, I'm in a city, um, sort, of, uh, sort of thing. And there were reviews in the newspapers, in the posh newspapers, that suggested that cinema as an art form had ceased to exist at this particular point because it was now too naturalistic. And it was sort of in the same way that I suppose happened with, probably had happened with photography. Uh, at, an earlier, at, a, at an earlier stage. And then we look at um, contrasting, taking films and saying, why does this one work and that one doesn't work? So a good example here is Brassed Off and The Full Monty. Two films, very similar in nature, both dealing with a very similar subject at exactly the same time. They both came out within about six months of each other. Um, both set in the north of England. Great cast, Peter Bothelswaite, Ewan McGregor and, and Tara Fitzgerald in one of them. And... Um, and then Robbie Carlyle and, and all the other wonderful guys in Full Monty. Full Monty took $300 million in America and Brastoff took 12 quid or something. <laughs> but they're both wonderful films. So we, did, we explore why, you know, why it wasn't the same. Was it to do with the way they were sold? Was it to do with other events? And of course, you have to remember that sometimes a film comes out and there's some extraneous problem, some, uh, you know, uh, national event happens in some way, which is going to... Uh, which is going to interfere with it. But ultimately, looking creatively, what were the differences between those, those two things? So we do quite a bit on that. Um, and then we talk about adaptation, which is one of my, um, 
of favourite things, because most of what I've done has, uh, has actually been adaptation. Um, and I referred earlier on to The Gravy Train, that was a Malcolm Bradbury, that was adapted from... In fact, what happened with that very briefly is that originally John Bird and John Fortune were, wrote a, a script for me, which was about... EC, the, the premise was to do with EC Corruption, is for Channel 4, and um, they, uh, they came up with a very, very funny uh, piece of work, but it was sort of too uh, slapstick. It was all about some um, daft Irish farmer who was daft, and that was sort of a bit uncomfortable. Um, and uh, making, he was making a fortune out of uh, his vineyard on the west coast of Ireland, which wasn't working. And so he was getting a subvention from EC to supplement his losses, because a vineyard isn't going to work on the west coast of Ireland. Um, anyway, we moved on, and we talked to Malcolm Bradbury. And Malcolm Bradbury obviously had written Rates of Exchange. So taking Rates of Exchange, we suddenly thought, well, that's something that we can adapt and, um, and move on. And so that's what we ended up doing based on rates of exchange and this spoof um, uh, guidebook he'd done to Slarka, which is the, the country where the whole thing is set. It's about a, a mythical Eastern European country joining the EC or trying to join the EC. Um, the most adapted book, it's a very bold statement because you're going to IMDB it in a second and check it. One of the most adapted books right, is not Pride and Prejudice, but is actually Emma. And Emma's been done about a dozen times. And it's a great example of how film cannot always satisfy and um, produce what's in, in the novel. And it's a good, we have a good class debate about whether things should be adapted or not. And when they are adapted, whose they are. So if you take William Shakespeare, there's not a single, assuming it was him who wrote them, but there's not a single piece of Shakespeare that isn't taken from somebody else. It's from Virgil, or it's from Hollinshead, or it's from some other source. The Taming of the Shrew is based on the Taming of a Shrew, and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. It's William Shakespeare's Richard III. And one of the arguments, possibly, is that if you're going to take um, Emma and turn it into a movie, it is no longer the Emma that it was, and it's, you know, it's your Emma rather than hers. But there's a good little test that we do here, which is that, I mean, you all know what the, the opening lines of Pride and Prejudice are. Does someone just want to do it quickly? Exactly. <laughs> so the opening lines of um, Emma, I think, are equally memorable, if not better, which is Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a comfortable home and a happy disposition, and she'd lived nearly 21 years. And if you did this as an Oxford tutorial as opposed to a fun class, you would then, you could spend an entire tutorial just analysing those two sentences. Because we're told that Emma Woodhouse is handsome. She's not pretty, she's not beautiful. She's handsome, which means that she's striking, perhaps. But she's not Gwyneth Paltrow, and she's not Kate Beckinsdale. <laughs> so if you were sent to, if I said, go down to Oxford Station, please, and can you meet my friend Emma? And I said, what do you look like? So she was his handsome mate. <laughs> and if Gwyneth Paltrow came past, you let her go. If Kate <laughs> you let her go. <laughs> Different person completely. So clever and rich. Now, clever, what does clever mean? Clever means um, not bright, not intelligent. Clever. That means she's wily. 
She's crafty, perhaps. Again, we're in a, we're in a slightly different uh, territory here. And rich. And rich is important because it means she can do whatever she likes, basically. But also, so she's nearly 21. And nearly 21 in those days, given when it was written, is very, very significant. Because it still means she's a child. If she was 21, she'd be an adult, but she's not an adult. She's nearly 21. It doesn't say she's 20. It says nearly 21 to make it clear that she thinks she's grown up and she's not. So you've got all of those things out of one and a half sentences, which you cannot communicate in a screenplay. You have to find a, com if, if, you know, you have to find a completely different, it's a completely different challenge <coughs> in order to do that. And your starting point is not Gwyneth Paltrow or Kate Beckinsdale or whoever it was, I can't remember the name, who did Clueless, who's the which is the same film. Remember who that was? Alicia <laughs> Silverstone, exactly. Anyway, so we spend quite a lot of time analysing whether we should do it, how we should, and if we are going to do it, how we should do it, and in the end, whose film that actually is. And so we have a, um, a, a lot of stuff on uh, film de and possessor credits. And the reason I had that particular cartoon up there is this is written, this is drawn by Alan Parker, and uh, the film director, and I'd sent him a screenplay uh, to read, and that was his response. <laughs> <laughs> but Alan, which is basically, no, look, I've already got these to read. Um, and... <coughs> But he's very interesting because he is apt to, he regards himself very much as an auteur director. He's not the writer, but he takes possession of the entire thing. And the challenge for you as writers is to establish a relationship with people like that to work on a collaborative basis. But ultimately, <coughs> you're going to lose. You will lose the control to the Alan Parkers of this world. But if you can do it on a collaborative basis, um, sort of so much, so much the better. And then there's the notion of, um, you know, what makes a film? What is the difference between a television film and a, and a cinema film? I worked for a very long time with a director called, or many, many films, called Jack Gold, who's a, who's a fantastic director. There's no two ways about it. He uh, did all sorts of amazing television things, like The Naked Civil Servant. Uh, he directed The Chain, uh, which I did with him, and we did some uh, Noel Card films. But his belief is, his mantra is, a film is a film is a film is a film. <coughs> it doesn't matter where it's going, because films are about people, ultimately, in his view. And I disagree with that. And I think if you want to write a movie, you're writing something that's on a, uh, hopefully on a, on, a, on a scale, where, and again, I do this in class with the teaching, saying I want you to write what's going on. I want you to write the relationship between these two people. But I want other things to be going on in this film that are informing what's going on. And I'll give you an example. So one of the, one of the exercises that you do is in a restaurant where you'll, you know, the exercise is that you have two people in a restaurant, a couple. They don't have to be you know, a romantic couple. It can be a mother and a daughter. It can be two mates. It can be, it doesn't matter what it is. But it's two people having a meal. And they're having a conversation about absolutely everything except what they should be talking about. <laughs> and then to say, right, so they're at the table, wherever it is, behind them, there's all sorts of stuff going on. I want you to put some business in that's going on there that's either counterintuitive or will contradict what they're doing to, to emphasize uh, what's going on um, as a way, or a way of mirroring and, 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 and strengthening, uh, strengthening the process. So for example, um, one of the students a couple of years ago wrote this amazing piece, which was two people having, you know, ladies having lunch in a posh restaurant somewhere. 
And just in five minutes, between the beginning and the end, you suddenly realize that they are actually a couple, which you didn't realize at the beginning. You just thought they were, you know, friends having lunch with their shopping bags. They're actually a couple, a married couple, and one of them is trying not to tell the other one that she's pregnant, which you didn't find out until the very, very last frame of the picture. It was incredibly, incredibly effective. But all sorts of indicators were going on behind the scenes in here that should have given us some clue about, about what was going on. Anyway, so going back to Jack, here's an example. So we, and when we were doing the chain, there was a scene which we um, did in Muswell Hill, which is a, um, a boy who'd been arrested is being, re being released from prison, and, or in this prison from the, from, the, from the police cells. He comes out, gets in the car, and he's driven off by his mum and his mum's mate. And I'd chosen a location um, with Jack Rosenthal, the writer. We'd chosen a location which is on the corner of Muswell Hill. So going down the hill, you had the whole panoply of London, and then you had the police station here on the left. And we had this idea about putting the camera over here, and so you'd get all of that and the boy coming out of the door. Jack put the camera outside the front door, bloke came out and drove out of shot. <laughs> because he spent too many years in television, basically. Because it was quick, and it's great. And he'd say, we finished five days early. He'd say, well, that's excellent, but actually we'd rather you spent five days more and got the big shot. Because the whole thing about the big shot is that here's this little event going on here. It's a little bit of business. Very important to these people who are major characters of ours, but this is going on everywhere else, all across London as well, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And that's what makes the difference, as far as I'm concerned, between a movie and um, a television programme. Um, I mean, not just the only thing, but um, uh, one of the things. So I'm going to shut up now because we've only got 45. I thought we had an hour to start with, but we've got 45 minutes. So I thought it would be quite useful to um, spend a few minutes just doing a, uh, a bit of a Q&A. So there's one other thing I did want to say, which is something It's a Will Boyd thing. And also David Mamet, if you can get hold of this, it's not actually published here. It's a Faber title, but it's in the States. It's called Writing in Restaurants by David Mamet. And if you want to be a great writer, and this applies to all, to all writing, but I think it's particularly good for film writing. Just sit and listen to everything that's going on around you. Eavesdrop. And Will Boyd says that, uh, or, or said that, the best thing that can possibly happen to a writer is a five-hour delay in Reykjavik <laughs> Airport. Because <laughs> you just sit there and you listen to the rest of humanity and you will hear the most unbelievable, unbelievable things. Um, I once heard, um, two women boasting about um, having just robbed a shop. <laughs> um, this is on the train going back to London from Bristol. And they were on their mobile phones talking to Darren and Dave back in London, saying, we got away with it, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they didn't, actually. But um, <laughs> anyway, it was a very amusing conversation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So thank you very much. But it's, uh, ask away about the course or the particular thing. Um, Adventures in Screen Trade. Thank you. He's got a few, but this is the, this is the first one. Um, one, of the, one of the good stories in here um, is uh, about the Great Waldo Pepper. Has anyone heard that story? Well, the Great Waldo Pepper was the catastrophic <coughs> film he wrote, which had Robert Redford in it, and I can't remember who else was in it. Waldo, Waldo, hmm? Was it George Pepper? 
It, it could well be. Yeah, yeah. And it was about these stunt pilots. And um, the head of the studio at the time had decided that he'd, he'd come from a different background, and he'd, you know, a film background, and he decided to find out what the most successful uh, genre of movie was. And it was airplanes at the time, airplane disasters. The most successful actor at the time was Robert Redford. It was probably Sophie Loren in it or something as well. Anyway, who the most famous actress was. And, uh, and the most successful screenwriter of all time was William Golden. So that was entered the pot, and it had to be a, a complete success. And it was a total turkey. Um, and then they analysed it for ages and ages and ages. And part of it they thought was maybe because Robert Redford actually let somebody die, and that that wasn't the character that they liked to see Robert Redford playing. Um, and um, it might just have been a very bad film. You know, it's difficult to tell. <laughs> Sorry, you can ask them back. Yes, well, what they're, they're, they're now, I mean, up until last year, there were just five classes, um, which are the very last five classes um, in year two. But now we've actually introduced three new classes in year one as well as a sort of a starter, so that people get, because what to happen, you have to choose your portfolio for your last project um, at the Christmas before the final term. Um, and because people hadn't done screenwriting, they then found themselves wanting to change, some of them, not all of them, honestly, wanting to change very, very late on in the, in the day. So what we're doing now is doing a few classes, basic, basic uh, film writing classes in year one, so people can get a flavour for it. And you can actually do it as a summer project between year one and year two as well, if you want. Though it's not marked, it's a, it's a project you can when have fun. When um, they happen in the, uh, the first year classes happen in the spring, the spring term, and the uh, second year classes are in the summer term. How do you go about acquiring the rights to a novel? It's a, it's a, that's a good practical question. Um, well, the first thing you have to do is if it's a living writer, uh, you have to go and uh, ch uh, cheer them up, basically and tell them uh, what it is you want to do with it and persuade them. <coughs> and if they really, really, really like you, then you will take an option. You will have to then go to their agent and take an option on, uh, on the book or, or whatever it is. Um, as a rule, um, the, the, the writer of a novel will get, depending on how uh, successful and, and powerful they are, but at a very minimum, you'd expect to get 3% of the cost of the film as the uh, fee for your book plus a percentage of the profits. Um, if you're a very, very powerful writer, you, you know, you can get up to 10% and some even go slightly, slightly uh, beyond that. And an option is usually 10% of the purchase price per year. So let's say you're going to pay £10,000 for the rights, it'd be more than that, but it'd be a £1,000 year option. And then if you get on really, really well with a writer, you can probably say, I haven't got that sort of money, and they'll do some kind of arrangement. I mean, there's a, there's a writer who went to Martin Amis and wrote a screenplay based on one of Martin Amis's books without having the rights, because he, he knew he just he couldn't even begin to have a conversation. And he thought the only way to do this is by showing Martin the quality of the work. And Martin was so impressed that he then said to his agent, give this guy a year's option and see if he can do something with it. So. But copyright is a very, very, very tricky uh, is a very tricky area. And the biggest problem with it, the big thing to remember is, and I was talking earlier on about people having very, very similar <coughs> ideas, is 
you can't just have an idea about a bloke giving a lecture at Conted on the 135th anniversary. That's not a copyrightable idea. There has to be something unique about it, and not just unique, but unique in the execution of it. There has to be something very, very, very specific in terms of how that story is, is being told. And the other challenge of it is that until you get established, most agents and most um, broadcasters and people like that won't read what you send them because they're terrified about getting sued. Because you send them something and then six months later you say, that was the idea that I sent you. So they will send it back to you and say unread most of the time. So they only, they'll only take it from a, um, a known source. So the easiest place to go in the first instance, for films anyway, is to an independent production company. Any more for any more? Do you think you have to <coughs> like choose earlier specialism? You know, like if you wanted to write novels and screenplays, should you just like abandon one because? Well, on the course, or in, in career, you're talking about. In career, yeah. No, I don't think so. And in fact, I mean, I, sorry, a couple of things I should mention is that um, we had a writer two years ago um, who wrote um, factual books, very successful. He was the defence correspondent of the Telegraph. And he wrote books about you know the history of Bletchley Park and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, he has now written he wrote a fiction novel, um, which is um, about to uh, about to come out. As a consequence of doing this course, that gave him the, the confidence to do that. And thirdly, he's actually the screenwriter on my current film. So, and he got that as a consequence of doing the course. Right. Sorry. Yes, I mean, there's a very good summer course here. What is that called? Um, it's, the, it's the Creative Writing Summer Course, but one of the options on it is, is uh, uh, television comedy. Although it is something that we're looking at introducing, not with me, but bringing that in as, a, uh, as an option. And I mean, interesting enough, there's a man called David Benedictus who's going to be teaching on the course from this year onwards. Um, and David Benedictus was the commissioning editor at Channel 4 when I did The Gravy Train, which is a comedy. So he's also a, a published, published writer. So he may be the kind of person who evolved into, I mean, I'm into conjecturing, but he, he, you know, he might become involved in that. Sorry, do you cover current trends in screenwriting as well? So for example, particular genres are particularly... Yes, absolutely. And, and talk about what is, you know, don't waste your time doing such and such. Um, everyone's looking for, you know, they're looking for, they are looking for um, thrillers and, and horror movies at one end. And the, but the most profitable place to be at the moment is actually in children's writing. I mean, way ahead, yeah. So, do I understand that if you want to get access to a screenwriting course by a diploma or a master's course? Yeah. It's not one of the 10 or 20 week courses. No, but there is a screenwriting course that I don't teach, that John Ballam teaches. But John, De bon John Ballam, who's head of departments, is a great guy. He'll tell you to buy Sid Field. Because <laughs> he's American. <laughs> but he's fantastic. Yeah. Just a difference in that Hollywood is a very, very different beast to other screenwriters. 
Yes, I mean Hollywood's a machine, so it expects when the when the when the uh, when the when the script goes in, there'll be uh, a young person there who will be making sure that it fulfills usual uh, expectations in terms of the number of pages and um, you know all that sort of thing. TV has commercials, so you have to. Yes, yeah, so you also have to have to have that exactly with, with with TV shows. And then one of the interesting things is when you do foreign adaptations, which I've done. Uh, 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 Done a few of. I mean, I've got some examples here. We did um, for television. I did the, the Famous Five, twenty-two of those. And that's the, the British DVD, and then it went all over the world. So De Five in uh, <laughs> Holland, Les Clubs de Cinq in France. Um, but the problem with De Five was that um, twenty-five minutes on, or twenty-three minutes on British commercial television, in terms of the words on Dutch televisions, forty minutes. So it's a real challenge to re-edit it. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for coming. I'm going to be downstairs having coffee, so if anyone wants to come and have a chat, do. Certainly here, I mean, you, you can be as mad as you like, it, isn't it? It's when you, when you cross the pond, you know. No. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, what's your name, sorry? Okay, okay. In between. Well, I think, I mean, there's, um, well, if you give me your email address, I'll send you a reading list <laughs> things, yeah? Let me, let me write that down. Um, I mean, that's entertaining. No, I mean, I'm not saying don't look at it, but just read it with caution, with, with like, you know, it should have the Surgeon General's health warning on it. Get a pen, and anyone who wants me to send them stuff, I will. Put it. So, just to say, if anyone wants any um, reading lists or anything sent to them, come and put your note and email address on a piece of paper here. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah
it's a bit, bit shorter than I thought it was going to be because I'm not suddenly told. I'm going for a better collection of these books. Yeah, that one is definitely. Oh, yeah. The one? Yeah, my wife reads all that sort of stuff. Oh, I've done it, yeah, yeah. Um, is it going to be released? Yes, it opens on the 19th of October at the London Film Festival. So we're, we're really toward, we're near, very near the end. It's called Fussball. But it's a table for